Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. For this episode, Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, talks to Ben Davey, Head of Barclays Ventures, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, about the winners and losers from an industrial revolution that has been turbocharged by the pandemic. They also discuss this week's summer statement from the Chancellor. Hello. This week, we're joined by another very special guest in the form of Ben Davey, our head of Barclays Ventures. This is the area of the firm that is dreaming up and creating the future of banking at the cutting edge of what's known as fintech and many other things. Ben's the type of guy that occupied the coolest working spaces and wore probably the most black polar necks before we all transferred to working from home in our slippers. So we'll be hearing some thoughts from uh, Ben about the future. We'll also have Will, who constantly drags us back to, to past history as he explains our present economic and market environment. So we'll likely have the whole timeline covered this week. We'll just discuss also a little bit of what we heard from the Chancellor back on, on Wednesday. And also as we look at the outlook of, of the economy through the prism of startup businesses that Ben's area works with on a day-to-day basis. So as usual, uh, we'll start with you, Will. Can you just give us a bit of a lowdown on the Chancellor's speech? Much of it was, of course, well telegraphed. We spoke about it a little bit with Sophie last week ahead of it. But what was your take on the package that came? Yeah, afternoon, Nikki. I have to admit, first of all, on, on, on terms of dress sense, I occupy the deep past as well, I'm told by my wife. So <laughs> it needs to be, Ben can update us all. The first thing to say is that with regards to the summer statement, it, that's unlikely to be it. Most expect more in the autumn uh, when the Chancellor should have a bit more detail on the shape of the economic recovery, maybe. Um, it's also worth pointing out that this is an incredibly challenging moment for policy makers around the world. They are trying to reanimate the parts of the economy that they put on ice a couple of moments ago, but with even less visibility on the sort of six to 12 month and beyond outlook than usual. Uh, One commentator uh, describing it as building a plane whilst in flight uh, through a tornado. From that perspective, the focus we saw on the kind of labour market and um, some of the kind of most troubled sectors, that's likely to be well received. From the perspective of the finances, on our estimates, it's going to add um, around another percent of GDP uh, to the deficit. Now, our colleagues at um, Barclays Investment Bank reckon that takes the UK's uh, deficit, the gap between government revenues and spending, um, to close to 13% of GDP for the year ahead. That's a, that's a chunky deficit by anyone's mm. uh, measures. Uh, And like I say, that's not it. Um, We expect some of the um, longer term, potentially beefier uh, spending plans uh, to be announced um, in the autumn. But perhaps that discount on fried chicken um, will will sweeten it for you, you, Will. But I guess, Ben, one of the most interesting aspects that that we heard from the Chancellor's statement there was was around the targeted VAT cut aimed at providing relief for for some of those areas hit by the plunge in social consumption, restaurants obviously being, being one of them. But Does that change the way that you're thinking about sectoral changes in the UK at all? Thanks, Nikki, and good afternoon, everyone. Um, Look, in short, I don't think it does of itself. Clearly, one of the challenges, deep challenges of the current environment is a significant reduction in hospitality, spend and consumption. And clearly, a targeted reduction in VAT, I'm sure, is very welcome in those sectors that will benefit in terms of just encouraging otherwise more cautious spending patterns to, to change. Coming back to your question, though, I don't think it particularly changes our way of thinking about sectoral impacts across the UK. 
and uh, perhaps we'll come on to in a, in a moment. But I, I think the way we've been thinking about industrial and sectoral change in the UK, uh, partly as a result of COVID, but in any event, I think was well on its way, is to almost take a step back and say, where in the UK have we got identified areas of competitive advantage from a sector perspective, where that change or that leadership can in part be driven by technology and data related effectiveness and efficiency. And we are as a result uh, in our part of of Barclays, but also working right across uh, the firm, really looking at examples which I would suggest include ag tech, health tech, law tech perhaps, creative tech, and of course fintech as examples of how uh, we think COVID is going to accelerate, if anything, change that was already well underway in really important strategic industries for the UK. So a, re- a real change to the landscape there, um, accelerating it. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. And, and Will, I saw a very alarming headline on the US job losses suggesting as much as 40% of the jobs loss would be probably permanent, in large part because of this necessary digital leap forward much the world has taken. UK unemployment has risen maybe a little less alarmingly so far, but the sense is that there is potentially worse to come for, for, for the UK's labour force. What, what do you see happening here? Yeah, I mean, both you and Ben are hinting at it here. I mean, I think the first point to make is that, that you know, the US economy is organised very differently to how we organise ourselves in the UK, or indeed they organise themselves in continental Europe. But you've basically seen close to a 10 percentage point jump in unemployment in the space of months, now, in a couple of months now. You know, there are some problems they are having. The statisticians in America are having some uh, problems with measuring unemployment at the moment. So there is a bit of a debate around the exact numbers. Uh, but whatever, this crisis has done a similar amount of damage to the labour market in a couple of months that the Great Depression managed in about two years. Now, the headline you allude to comes from a working paper uh, from three you know, very well-known you know, labour market economists. Uh, and they look at a range of kind of anecdotal and survey data to make uh, you know, that shocking suggestion. To be honest, now I think the point is, and just you know, talked a little bit about this. And I suspect he'll talk a little bit more about it because this is the area that, in a sense, he's looking at some of the core beneficiaries of this change. But corporate and consumer behaviour has necessarily changed markedly so in the last couple of months. Now the feeling is, as Ben said, that a good deal of that change could be permanent. Now, as with all such changes. You see jobs created and jobs destroyed. But a lot of time, unfortunately, or history tells us, there is quite a gap uh, between the destruction and the creation, uh, potentially leaving your workforce or quite a lot of your workforce uh, in a very uncomfortable kind of effective limbo. Now, the fear in the context of the furlough schemes in the UK and Europe is that you're kind of delaying the inevitable. At worst, uh, actually getting in the way of the reallocation process in terms of the labour market. Now, certainly in the UK, you've seen a sharp rise in claims for universal credit, uh, which suggests that underneath that so far more placid uh, employment data so far, at least relative to the US, that there is more alarming stuff going on and other data do sort of seem to corroborate this. So we're going to have to watch very closely in the next couple of months and in particular as the furlough scheme starts to uh, starts to taper um, you know, uh, towards the end of the year. Yeah, okay. And and Ben, in this context, I guess new businesses have, have a really vital role to play here in, in reabsorbing these workers, helping retrain, etc. What, what what are the benefits that we might see in due course? Uh, look, I think you've started in exactly the right place. Obviously, the entrepreneur and founder community are really focused on new ideas, new propositions that hopefully create new clusters of employment, obviously starting small, but uh, as we all know, 
uh, good ideas can scale very quickly. The second area you touched on, I think, is very important, and it's slightly separate from the employment piece, which is the teaching and the development of new skills. Uh, mm. And I do think the early stage community do a wonderful job of taking some great talent, be it from universities, other startups, or indeed out of large corporates, and really honing those skills in the uh, in the sort of quest for customer centric propositions. That would be the second area. I think the third area is is actually probably underappreciated, which is the um, transformative and sometimes incremental change that these startups uh, and early stage companies can have on larger incumbents uh, across the corporate world. And you're seeing, I think, increasingly a willingness to collaborate in the larger corporates and affecting change in fairly traditional ways of working, sometimes, not always, through the adoption of partnership models with the startup community. Uh, And so they're a, a real catalyst for change, I think. The fourth area, I think, is very important, which is all about efficiency. You could call it Uh, cost-cutting, but it's very much driven from the starting point of new technologies enabling processes to be run far more effectively than they were before. So automation, digitization, in some instances, just a a migration to a virtual environment. Uh, And so that's probably the fourth of the the big impacts. And I think if you wrap those all up and then come back to the, the new skills, I think that's probably the bundle that I would suggest the early stage community can contribute into the, the UK economy. And and what can we do to support? I mean, I assume our Eagle Labs, which some of our listeners may have heard of, but perhaps, Ben, you could you could just give us a, a little bit of a, a, a definition there, but, but that they have a role to play in nurturing these businesses in their early stages as they adapt. Yeah, very, very much so. So we, um, we operate two ecosystems, which are really environments where we co-work, as it were, with the startup community. And so the first one is called Eagle Labs, which is right across the UK and is actually the UK's, I think, largest incubator network. And so we have 25 Eagle Labs from Aberdeen down to Brighton and Cardiff all the way across to Cambridge and many, many places in between. And we currently house in that environment and work with uh, around 550 high growth companies across all sectors, including some of those that I mentioned a little bit earlier on. And the, this is very much the place of work uh, for these startups. And what we try and do is bring the benefit of the Barclays network, our partners, our um, friends and family, as it were, and, and make available that network uh, to help the founders uh, and their companies grow. We also play in and provide mentorship, some form of uh, sponsorship uh, from time to time. We also run programs. One of the um, most recent ones, which was actually incredibly successful, was all about access to finance, a key topic in the current environment. And importantly, we also introduce the startup community to our own client base, but also uh, to each other. And there's nothing better, particularly in the current environment, for founders, CEOs, management teams to have access, frankly, to each other and talk about opportunities uh, to work together, of course, but also to learn from each other. The second network is our RISE network, which is fintech specific, has been around for about five years and is uh, a really well-established, I think very well-regarded network tailored specifically to early stage companies in the fintech space. And uh, that has an international reach. So we've got a large uh, presence in London and in New York, uh, also in Mumbai, and we also operate more virtually in Tel Aviv. And the purpose of that is to provide exactly the same sort of support as I described for the Eagle Labs network, but very much at this point tailored to fintech. And that there we have in particular the added advantage of being able to run POCs uh, that might be relevant to Barclays, or at least for the banking industry, 
and deliver some of that in industry expertise in addition to some of the other things that I mentioned in relation to the Eagle Labs. And Ben, just what do you think a crisis like we are living through both both a health crisis and, and an and a economic crisis does to entrepreneurial instincts? We, we had... Um, we had our colleague Juliet Rogan on the other day. Uh, she pointed out that Brits tend to be a bit less keen on a on a side hustle than our American cousins. But is that something that you would agree with? Do you think there is anything that we could do to change that? I'm not sure I fully agree with the starting point, actually. I mean, perhaps it's because <laughs> it's the environment I spend probably most of my time working with. But I, I think there is great sort of side hustle and entrepreneurial skill in the UK. But just because it's in the UK doesn't mean it comes from the UK. I mean, it's a fabulously diverse population that we work with. Great companies globally come into the UK or indeed just to our rise sites in other locations to take the benefit of a truly diverse and, and global ecosystem and learning from each other. But to come back to the first part of your question, I think the, the a crisis like the one that we're currently in, I think slightly oddly, is a huge catalyst for sharpening entrepreneurial instincts. There is just no room in the current environment for any lack of efficiency. Uh, you've got to be driven. You've got to be very focused on customer centricity. You've got to really understand your cash flow and your financial forecasts and your capital raising requirements. And so uh, whilst obviously there are going to be many hard lessons and, and, and unfortunate outcomes for the very best of the companies, the very best of the founders, there is no environment like the current one to really test the appropriateness and market fit of what you've developed, pivot where required, because some of the old orthodoxy has just gone. But ultimately, if you, if you can survive the current environment, you are going to flourish when uh, hopefully some more uh, normal times return. Yeah, really well said. And um, Will, just to give you a little bit of a chance to, to talk about the historical perspective, but obviously don't take too much of advantage of my generosity. Um, but, but the UK is the birthplace of, of the first industrial revolution. So what are some of the things that we can learn as we look back to that period with regards to revolution that, that we're still potentially, you know, only in the foothills of? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first one, Nikki, and I'll try, uh, I can't promise anything, but I think the first one is that all industrial revolutions, the point we've already mentioned, come with massive disruption to the labour market. Uh, and this is the sort of point to them, in the honest, if you think about it, most of the revolutions about finding ways to get machines uh, to do people's jobs, cheaper, quicker, you know, more, uh, more reliably. Now, other jobs then tend to be created elsewhere in the economy as kind of new industries pop up. But thinking about sort of, you know, the first industrial revolution, all that disruption can sound sound uh, kind of fine, fine and dandy from a, a safe distance, particularly when we know in hindsight that this moment, uh, wherever you want to pinpoint it to, you know, you can start with the, you know, the invention of the new common engine in 1712. But this moment literally transforms the future of humanity from, uh, you know, millennia of flatlining living standards to a sudden kind of doubling of life expectancy over, over a couple of hundred years. However, the point is that living through these periods is substantially messier, uh, particularly in the context of that kind of customary lag between, you know, the destruction of old jobs and the creation of new ones. And you guys were just talking about side hustle. Just think about this in the context of the first industrial revolution. So uh, pre-industrial revolution, you know, many agricultural families, they would spin or weave cloth part time in order to supplement incomes. Now, these jobs obviously disappeared almost overnight when the big machines came along, uh, decimating household incomes for a large chunk of society and redistributing it to kind of factory owners and other. Uh, and I guess the point is that although, you know, you know, 
the trends in life expectancy and uh, you know so on do take off after the industrial revolution there's something called angles pause which is actually there is a huge lag between innovation itself and all that disruption uh, and the actual takeoff um, in life expectancy and living standards angles pause that turned out to be about 50 years. Uh, so you can imagine that it all looks fine yeah. from a historical perspective, but we need to be aware that it comes with significant difficulties and disruption. And is this is this why, you know, the, the talk of universal basic income is is somewhat more prevalent right now? I mean, what are the things that we could be thinking about from a policy perspective to, you know, get us through potentially, whether it's 50 years or, or, or the equivalent um, that you just described? Yeah, I mean, I think if you think of the challenge for policymakers, you know, all will be desperate to find ways to grow out of the te- debt piles um, amassed necessarily, uh, you know, fighting this uh, this pandemic. Uh, the alternatives tend to be, you know, less popular with, um, with, uh, with voters for a start, you know, austerity for one. However, you know, unleashing the forces of this next industrial revolution on your economy when your social contract, you know, could already be wobbly, you know, and I'm you know, thinking about all around the world potentially here, uh, you know, the costs could easily outweigh the benefits in the short run. So, I think there is a definitely or you know many think there is definitely a need to think about you know how to design sufficiently flexible social safety nets um, now, the proponents of UBI, you know, universal basic income, argue that such a payment could free the corporate sector's arms to, you know, chase that proliferating array of labour-saving technologies. You know, Ben was alluding to without fear of societal uh, reprisal. Uh, but you know, this is a big and complex debate, which I, I can't really do justice. To here, but I think for the moment the shorthand is that uh, the likely cost of providing a meaningful living wage to every citizen uh, in the country is likely the main deterrent. There are other factors to consider, but it doesn't actually solve directly some of the big problems in educational inequity that are also vital um, it, 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 to work on in the context of that likely coming revolution. Again, you know, Ben pointed out that you know the private sector, some of these entrepreneurs are able to cater to some of that, but you've got to have a catch-all. You know, education system, both for mid-career retraining to make sure that your workforce uh, is pu- fueling the kind of businesses that Ben talks about. Can I uh, just add to that? Because I think there are a couple of things I c- couldn't agree more, which is, you know, to completely agree that, that, that you really do need some form of flexible safety net. And then you've got to pair it, I think, to a very forward-looking, progressive educational programme which is relevant to the environment, uh, coming back to the concept of industrial revolution, which I 100% believe we're in the middle of, that is uh, going to require a complete change of, of skill sets to be, to be taught, you know, really from school up. And that has to include an understanding of big data. It should include an appreciation of both the positives and the negatives around various forms of machine learning and artificial intelligence. It should enable uh, both young and old, because I don't, this is not an age-specific comment to be comfortable both testing utilizing and embracing some of these new technologies and then finding the roles that emerge from that understanding in in the environment that they're actually operating in so i do believe that there's a need for a flexible uh, a flexible safety net tied to a really uh, current and constantly evolving commitment to teaching digital skills. I totally agree. Well I, could, I could use some of that as well, to be honest, Ben. But yeah, I totally, totally agree. <laughs> and I think, you know, to your point, I mean, we, we, you know, we've just, I think we may have to get used to the idea, or many are speculating that we may have to get used to the idea that for a little while, the state is going to have to expand its its reach a little bit. Um, that's not going to please the libertarians, but you know that there, there are so many making a case for it. But education is just that one of the most important parts of this, because in the end, 
you know, the, there was an old economist called Julian Simon, who's a favourite economist, economist of mine. I know that's a tragic thing to say, but he was the, he was the guy who argued that mankind, humankind, is the world's most precious resource because we are born uh, to innovate and improve our surroundings. And the implication of this is that the more of us there are, the better life should get. But we have to make the most of that resource. And that's education is the key part of that. I completely agree. Well, but just to follow up, because I think um, the other thing I draw out is is genuinely the level of curiosity and thirst to learn that, that I think is just generally prevalent. And one little sort of data point for you on that. Through this uh, Eagle Labs and, and RISE network that we participate in, we ran last year on the general topics of industrial revolution, digitization, and then specific areas of, of this new wave of technological change. We ran just over 3,000 events uh, across our networks, uh, attended by over 110,000 people. Wow. And if you just take a pause for a moment, just Blimey. sort of just think about the enormity of that uh, interaction. And, you know, there are lots of individual instances that I could quote at you. But it, the point being, it's, it is um, both telling you how interested people are in these topics, how willing they are to connect, and also the role that uh, you know, not just banks, but large corporates all the way through to founders and startups can, uh, can, can play in helping this reskilling and this uh, digital education that we've been talking about and and if if nothing else i mean i think i think even perhaps people that 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 may have felt the least equipped to you know to learn new skills or or adapt to change by virtue of the 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 changes that everyone has gone through through lockdown um you know even basic things like using zoom or or skyping friends etc you know we we have definitely seen a greater degree of openness and, and and some of those proof points to individuals that certainly, you know, I know when I when I talk to some of my family members, um, certainly some of the more senior ones, you know, they they before there would be no driver for them to to try and adapt and, and change and and now, you know, clearly that has been forced and you know they've seen actually it's not that tough. I mean that's a great point. That's a great point, Nikki. We actually run um what we call the digital legal program which is sort of well known in the, in the branches. We've actually been working with a number of local councils more recently with an ambition to help train the council employees in digital skills. And uh, 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 they won't mind me uh, referencing them. One of our partners is um, Salford Council. And uh, we've trained now across their community about 750, I think it is, employees with an aim of then taking those skills out into their own communities and teaching the local communities to uh, effectively adopt digital tools with the use case in particular being universal credit. And uh, we know from the, um, the statistics that the council have put together that for each family uh, taught the uh, digital legal skills, they were able to access you know, universal credit and other forms of benefit and make a saving, uh, their estimates were of in the order of £750 a year, which is a huge, a huge deal. So yeah. that's the type of th yeah. that's the sort of things you can achieve if you're working in partnership in these communities. That's great to hear. And listen, Ben, I mean, it has been it has been incredibly both both interesting. I, I certainly feel somewhat relieved that that there are there are these these steps that you and your team are driving to to help really incubate and, and and help some of these startups flourish, but also, as you say, the work that's being done to just generally help educate and, and increase that confidence level around uh, the digital path that we're all on, whether whether you like it or not, but, but hopefully 
with with a bit more familiarity, it will it will become um, something that that people feel less frightened of. So bravo, bravo to you and your team. Will, thank you very much. And thank you to our listeners and subscribers. Do please keep giving us feedback, preferably to Will, if it's abuse on LinkedIn. Um, but let us know if there are any topics, if anything you've heard today particularly tickles your fancy that you'd like to hear a bit more about, don't hesitate to let us know. So thanks very much. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.